Welcome to Navigating Change, everyone. My name is Pete Wright, and I'm here with Howard Teibel once again. Howard, hello. Hey, Pete. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Well, it's Excellent. weird that it's just uh, just you and me again. I was getting used to having our friend Rebecca on the call. I know. <laughs> that was fun. That was fun. We need to do that some more. We will. Um, the, uh, the, the topic we have today is something that is, uh, boy, this is your day-to-day. Uh, man, I'm very excited to talk about this because, uh, you know, as with many of us, I, I think, in the field, I have had mixed results as an attendee of strategic planning retreats. And that's exactly what you want to talk about today, how to structure a strategic retreat to its greatest effectiveness. Am I right? That's exactly right. All right. So uh, first, here's, here's, my, uh, here's my bias. Most often when I have attended these strategic retreats, uh, they are fundamentally disorganized. Why is that? How does that happen? You know, that gets to the whole question of planning. And um, it's such a fine line because you don't want to overplan these things. And a matter of fact, the the real art, I think, of a strategic retreat is going in with an objective, but also being flexible. And that in itself is difficult uh, because people can get attached to agenda. Everyone wants to see the agenda in advance, and and ultimately somebody within the group may may define the agenda, and then you're in the conversation uh, during the day, and. If you end up with an unorganized retreat or unfocused, what what that really means is it could be one of two things. One is you either don't have a facilitator, whether it's internal or external, uh, keeping the conversation focused on getting through a topic and then resolving it and moving on, or you don't have clarity about what you should be talking about. And I'd say that the Second one is probably more prevalent. Uh, some groups are much better than others. And, and it's a process question. It's like how do you define what is the things that are priorities? You know, one of the things that, that I'll do with a group in advance, and I'll actually do this. This is a great strategy to use even in the middle of a retreat. So let's say that you're spending four hours together as a group. In the third hour, with one hour to go, I will turn to the group, and again, I'm an outsider, but I'm part of the group in this particular event, and I'll say, all right, imagine this session, our retreat is over right now. What didn't we cover? In seconds, people know precisely what they should be talking about. And for whatever reason, uh, I think as human beings, when we say, all right, what do we want to talk about, We and looking forward, it's really hard for us to parse out what's important, what's not important. But when you say it's done, what didn't we talk about? Immediately, everybody knows what we should be talking about. And if you, you, so you can actually strategically plant that question with enough time so you can get through it. But I would even suggest you ask that question in the planning process. Imagine that the retreat's over and we didn't cover X, what would that X be? And people will immediately figure out what it is they should have been, that they should talk about or have as a topic uh, 
as a priority in the retreat. Well, that makes so much sense because I, and I think you just framed my sort of worldview on these things. When you go in and you feel like that question has never been answered, then A, you're never really taking into account what the group needs to accomplish. Usually it seems like there's this artificial sort of from on high dictate of what the group needs to come together and accomplish. And, you know, so everybody's sort of meandering around the point at hand because they don't quite know how to frame it. Or you get an agenda which becomes poison to what could really be the organic benefit of the meeting. Right, exactly. You know, the other piece that's really interesting about this is this question about who defines the objectives. Right. Uh, should it be the group? And, and all I'd say about that, I don't, there isn't an answer to this. It, depending on your team and the different roles people play, it may be your entire team. Some boards are made up of five people. Some boards are made up of 15 people. Obviously, the larger the group, the more you have to think about having a core group defining it and running by the larger board. But and I say board, it could also be an executive team. It could be a, a planning team. Uh, the key thing around defining objectives, especially in doing the work, is being transparent so that ultimately somebody in the room is probably in charge. I mean, you've got, for example, whether it's the project manager whether it's the president who's on the board, whoever is de facto the person who, who called the meeting, who is responsible for saying, this is what we're going to talk about. There needs to be transparency on this person's part. We're going to talk about X, and I'm going to decide on the, once we discuss the topic, I will make that decision in this case. In another case... This is going to be a discussion, and we're going to vote as a group. This is not my decision alone. And I think what happens for groups that become very uh, difficult is not knowing when they're in charge of the decision, the discussion, and if you can make that clear, this is how we're going to navigate this conversation, and this is how we're going to decide that helps people be part of the conversation because well, yeah, that's really, where the confusion lives. For sure. What is your responsibility for being in this room, right? I mean, what are you, your expect, the expectation we have of you is either to solve a specific problem that's been handed to us as a team or to define how we're going to take a more of an amorphous directive and turn it into a day-to-day, -day, you know, tactical plan. And you know what's so interesting about that, Pete, is that, for whatever reason, and maybe I can see this in my own behavior too, in a, running a business and having people around me, is that it's we we make assumptions about the people that either work for us or that are on our team that they know what we're expecting. And I cannot tell you the number of times when, for example, a president or the chair leaves the room the group commiserates about not really knowing how this is going to play out. And I'll say this later on maybe to the person in charge, and they'll, they'll almost be incredulous. Like, how could they not know that was my expectations? So the other key learning here I would recommend to anybody in charge is to really question the assumptions you're making and err on the side of, 
let's make sure we understand how we're going to decide this. And I'm telling you, if you ask a group of people that you think know how the decisions get made and you don't ask them, but if you say to them, all right, how are we going to make this decision? Or, or you will find out that there is a lack of clarity because you have not actually been explicit about how the decisions are going to get made. And that is so prevalent. Uh, and senior leaders don't, they, they, for whatever reason, they don't really believe that. They go into it thinking that people should read their minds. How does, how does that, uh, that issue play into a decision or a, a sort of a strategic direction to include an outside facilitator versus mm -hmm. having an in, internal facilitator? Well, you know, having done lots of facilitation of groups, I, I think, and again, I obviously I have a bias, but I think what makes a effective partnership between outside facilitation, inside facilitation, uh, or between outside facilitation and and working with the group is recognizing that it's if you're facilitating, it's really not about you. And that your job is to serve the group as best as possible. Matter of fact, I'm going to be doing this. Uh, I was brought in to facilitate this upcoming event at this uh, organization. And I just discovered they want me part of this, but not necessarily to facilitate to me. They're going to facilitate. And I said to them, listen, my role here is to help you achieve your outcomes. And if what that means is I am listening and finding other ways of contributing because you've got some strong people internal, there's another role that I could play. So I think that the key thing about external facilitation, uh, and I think when it's done well, is that there's a willingness to go into it and be flexible. You have a role, you might think you know what's gonna produce the outcome, but I can tell you three hours into it, there are some changing dynamics. You're going to learn things. And if you can raise the questions about, you know what? It looks like we're moving down this path. Should we talk about this as a group and being willing to really listen for whether it makes sense to change the agenda, which, you know, God forbid you change your the agenda. People get all nervous about changing the agenda. But in fact, sometimes that is precisely what needs to happen to really achieve the outcome. Well, yeah, I, I, boy, that that just rings so true to me. I mean, first of all, you can then avoid the the agenda as poison phenomena, but you also get the ability. I think what you're talking about here, what you're getting to here, is that that you have this ability to to uh, streamline kind of the translation element between whoever is as an outsider, whoever is directing you to, you know, facilitate this meeting and make sure that everybody is, you know, all parties involved are actually on the same page, that they understand what the other party is saying. It, it, yeah, it's it's know, almost well, a he said, she said kind of a thing. Right. And I, I hear a lot when I am asked to facilitate a event that what they want is the person who can do it because very often, almost always, there is a, there is a competent person who would do a great job of facilitating. And it's often the person in charge. You know, they got to where they are because they're a good communicator. Uh, but what they want to do is they want to actually be a participant and represent themselves and not have to be unbiased. And when they recognize that, I think... That is a really important 
insight that if what you have to do as president even is you want to represent a point of view, uh, it's very hard to do that and also be unbiased in the facilitation role. So there are times it's I think that's a really smart strategy. And other times if the decision making is relatively straightforward and you know where you want to take it, outside facilitation isn't key. The other thing I would say about outside facilitation is that it's the classic, you don't know what you don't know. And w- w- getting a perspective from somebody who is not buried in the process can sometimes reveal questions that the group itself would never come up with because the group already knows what the problem is. As a matter of fact, they already know how to solve it, uh, when in fact, maybe there's a different question that should be asked. Sure, sure. This is, uh, so in terms of uh, having the, uh, asking the outside facilitator to come in and and direct the meeting, uh, that seems to be one, you know, one piece of this discussion. But there's another piece that I think is pretty critical, which is how, I mean, specifically when you're talking about this reflective, reflective piece uh, that that facilitator provides, what role does an outside facilitator have in helping to determine the agenda in the pre-work sort of phase? Well, that that is also an interesting balance because if you have subject matter knowledge on that, sometimes uh, a group can give too much authority to the facilitator, and it's a, it's it's a big responsibility. The if I know, for example, if I'm if I have facilitated multiple uh, events for let's say the real estate industry, and I get brought into another one, and I know the jargon and I know the language, I could make recommendations about what we should be talking about when in fact what I really should be doing is listening for what are the core issues that the group thinks is important. So in that capacity, I think it's really important that the the facilitator err on the side of not trying to show how much they know. And that's that's the inherent dilemma with becoming an expert in anything is that you fall into the trap of thinking the real value is what you know but in fact, I think the real value, especially in consulting, is helping others uh, learn how to do it themselves or that they know everything and you're, in the, you're more of a guide than you are an expert. So I'm always asking myself, am I putting too much of my own bias into the conversation uh, because of my knowledge of this particular area? Uh, and sometimes you'll make a suggestion and they'll say, yeah, that's exactly what we should be talking about. But again, as a facilitator, I think your job is not to get attached and be willing to shift gears uh, if you see you're going down a path that's not effective. To be the one that guides and is an expert on process, not necessarily uh, content. Yeah, and that's what's interesting about that is so much of what happens is if you're hired by somebody – and he, what he wants or she wants is to demonstrate that their strategy is uh, the right direction. They might be using you to help validate what they're doing. And since you're the expert, so the, the challenge becomes, depending on who's the stakeholder or, in a sense, your customer, uh, you really have to be – you have to find that right balance of – serving their needs because they're hiring you, but at the same time, be willing to push back if there should be a, 
if your job is you, you know to not just be the voice to validate the president's point of view, but be a voice that produces value for others too, uh, and that can get a little bit tricky because you do want to take care of the person who's saying we could use your help, but you also want to make sure that you're serving the greater good of what the organization's up to. And your own integrity. And your own integrity. You don't necessarily just want to be a paid mouthpiece. That's right. As much as I'm sure there's a market for that, too. Yes, there is. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great discussion, Howard. I, I hope this helps our uh, our audience to uh, to help think uh, very critically about how to make their uh, strategic uh, you know retreats effective. I mean, when you're going to make a commitment to pull your people out of work for a day to days at a time, you got to make sure these things work. You know, the one thing I'll say to wrap this up is uh, the thing I'm always asking, especially with strategic retreats, even if the players change over the years and you're doing this repeatedly is to ask yourself the question what does it mean to not do this business as usual because otherwise people come into these things and they're they're already rolling their eyes they already know what's going to happen and it's there's a level of resignation so if you can apply a thought process which is what would it mean to uh, have this event at the end people say we have never done anything like this and this was so useful. What would your day look like? And that's a great place to start. That's a beautiful way to wrap it up, too. Thank you so much, uh, Howard, for your time today. Uh, always a pleasure to uh, come back and record these things each week. Absolutely. Same here with you, Pete. To learn more about Tybal Inc., visit tybalinc.com. You can uh, follow us on Twitter at Howard Tybal to hear, uh, to hear uh, uh, Howard's musings on uh, uh, people, process, and technology as he, we post to the blog and continue to update the podcast. And uh, on behalf of Howard, my name is Pete Wright. Thank you, and we will join you again next week with another episode of Navigating Change. <laughs>